us the so-called flying saucer. The film and the creature are authentic. The first pictures ever taken of a Sasquatch. But they got nearly up to this UFO, but it was close enough to see some creatures or things so they didn't look like human beings down there. He first asked me what I was called, and uh, he asked me, he said, but why are you frightened? He said, don't be frightened, we wish you no harm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Strange Dispatch. It has been a little while. My name is Andrew Jewell. I am the host of this podcast. And The Strange Dispatch is a show about all things strange and unusual around us. This is a project that runs in tandem with a magazine that I self-published called Strange Days. If you've not joined us before, welcome. Thanks so much for listening. And to all of our already established friends, hello. How are you? Hope you're doing well. Hope everyone has had a, a great spooky season and has been enjoying fall time and the thinning of the veil and all of that. It's certainly been a busy one for me. Um, I recently just put out the new issue of Strange Days, which was volume 13, which is pretty rad. Really excited about that issue. We recently had a release party for that here in New York in Queens. Thank you to everyone who came out to that. That was a really good time. Shout out to the Flying Fox Tavern for having us. That was really fun. Um, the new issue, Volume 13 of Strange Days, has the culmination of a three-part series that I wrote about the Highgate Vampire, which is, if you're not familiar, like the best weird story of high strangeness ever. It's absolutely ridiculous tale about a vampire that was stalking in North London in the 1970s and two amazingly bizarre individuals who were trying to hunt it down and kill it. So if you don't know that story, pick up um, the newest issue of Strange Days, or rather maybe start back at issue 11, where part one of the Highgate Vampire story is. Uh, also in the new issue, some really great contributions from friends new and old. So thank you to everyone who submitted. I really appreciate it. The zine wouldn't be the same without stories from our friends. So thanks so much for that. I'm really excited today. It's been a minute since I've recorded one of these, and it's been uh, uh, some extra long minutes since I recorded with my guest today, who is a good friend of mine named Vince Suhanik. Vince and I did an episode like two, almost two years ago about the Michigan Dogman. Pretty insane that it's been that long, but hey, Vince, welcome back. Happy Halloween, man. How are you? I'm feeling well. Thank you. Happy Halloween to you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm feeling it this season. I have had um a, a bunch of time off this year because of because I work in the film industry and the film industry is, yeah. has imploded so I've had a lot of time to like revel in the spookiness which has been super fun it's like yeah kind of kind of has reignited some of that magic that like gets sucked out of having to work in a capitalist society and I am not doing that currently so the magic is back it's been great yes yeah, not the worst thing that's ever happened yeah i mean it is it is what it is. Um, it, right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it was a it was a fun summer, and someday I'll go back to work. But until then, I'll just keep reading and writing about weird shit that fills my brain and takes the space that's not currently being occupied by other stuff. So I'm I'm totally totally okay with that. Uh, Vince and I have a really fun topic to talk about today. This is something that he and I have wanted to do for a bit, uh, one particular part of this episode, but it's kind of a, 
a bigger topic, so we'll work our way to the particular piece of lore that he and I both really, really love. And um, you actually chose this topic, Vince, and the topic is harbingers, harbingers of doom, of death, of bad news, just creatures that if you see them, it's probably not a good thing, and, and you should probably keep your guard up and, and um, yeah, be on a high alert. Uh, I know why you love this topic, but why, you know, just for, for listeners, why was this a topic that you were drawn to want to talk about? Uh, I mean, it's interesting. It feels like it's tied into a lot of the weirder things that, uh, I and you both love, um, Men in Black, uh, the entirety of the Mothman, um, which I don't think we're talking about either of those today because they're so widely covered. Uh, but then, yeah, the final thing we're going to be talking about today is, uh, again, another Michigan-specific thing that is uh, less covered um, and, and totally. super interesting. And I love it. Yeah, so I agree. It is. It is a very fun, fun thing that. I feel like not. It, it certainly doesn't have the popularity of the Mothman by far. So that right, it might be a right, new. Yes, yes. It might be it's some covered. People, it's We're covered. We're not breaking yeah. new ground here. But but, but. It, for some listeners, maybe they haven't heard it before. Uh, there's a motorcycle who's revving the shit out of his engine outside my window. As always, I'm recording from Brooklyn, New York. So please excuse any of the street noise. It's especially noisy here lately. I, I don't really know why. But for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm from Michigan. Vince is also from Michigan. He lives there now. He's He has lived other places. We were roommates here in, in New York at one point, and now he's back in Michigan. So that's why we did the Michigan Dogman previously, and then, as, as Vince said, the sort of last topic of today is very Michigan-centric. So that's kind of why we're drawn to these topics. So, yeah, I mean, f- without further ado, I think it's time to talk about Harbingers. A harbinger, the definition of a harbinger, is something that foreshadows a future event, something that gives an anticipatory sign of what's to come. And and today we're specifically talking about bad harbingers, things that are not good, bad omens, harbingers of doom, whatever you may want to call them. And we're sort of we're focusing on the uh, versions of these harbingers that actually take different forms, form of creatures. Essentially, we're not talking about some piece of folklore superstition where you know if you break a mirror you have seven years of bad luck that sort of harbinger we're talking about creatures that you may find in your path and if you do based on hundreds of years of folklore and 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 mythology it's probably not a good thing and i chose just some that Vince and I both are into some of these creatures that I think are a little bit less covered. As we said, you're probably very familiar with the Mothman, and he was said to be a harbinger of the Silver Bridge catastrophe in, Mo- in Point Pleasant, uh, West Virginia, in 1967. And and you know that's not to say that the Mothman caused this disaster. The whole idea of a harbinger is they are not what's going to bring the harm to you. They are just telling you, hey, you better look alive because some shit is about to go down. So the first harbinger that we are going to talk about is what's known as a black shuck. And the black shuck, or sometimes called the old shuck, is a ghostly black dog that originates in English folklore. Talking, you know, the, the United Kingdom, Britain, Welsh folklore. Typically, they're described as a large dog with fiery red eyes, although sometimes the eyes are, are seen as yellow or green. And shucks are oftentimes believed to be an omen of death. Not always, but oftentimes. 
according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the name shuck derives from an old English word that is called skuka, which means devil or fiend. Most legends of the black shuck originate from East Anglian folklore, typically in the areas of Suffolk, Cambridgeshire, and Essex. Um, shucks have been revor- reported to be various sizes. Sometimes they are as large as like a small horse or a calf, baby cow. Uh, sometimes they're said to have mangy fur and to act like they're rabid. If it, you know, you picture a rabid dog, they, they're supposed to sort of act kind of wily in that way. Uh, occasionally, they've been they've been sighted with foam at the mouth like a rabid animal and they're said to have a blood curling howl but let's hope that you and i never hear that because i can't imagine that's (laughs) a good thing i mean we've heard some shit in the woods that has has uh, been kind of frightening at the time while we're backpacking if we heard a black shuck howl i can't imagine i would yeah i don't know i don't think i would get any sleep in the woods no i'm not gonna handle it super well um (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's I uh, I like a lot of the interesting stuff here that is just like, yeah, uh, it it seems like a super sick dog, like <laughs> right, yeah, uh, uh, right. I mean, like uh, you know, the the uh, legends are dating back to you know uh, a time when uh, uh, dogs were prevalent in the streets, probably more than they are right now. Totally, uh, oh, that's a good places point. that we live and just like sick ass dogs are are not a good sign yeah that's a really good point like yeah that i hadn't hadn't really thought about that like you it probably wasn't uncommon to come across a dog whether it had been stray or just like you know roaming around but if you come across one with fiery red eyes and it's looking kind of mangy yeah yeah rabid size size of a small horse you know that's a that's a different animal that's that's different than just a sick dog but also just like yes yeah 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 a sick dog is that's not great. No, it's not not good. <laughs> in a in a book from 1901 called Highways and Byways by some guy named William Alfred Dutt, which is a great last name, he described <laughs> it's like butt with a D, just D U T T. He described the black shuck as taking the form of a huge black dog that prowls along dark lanes and lonesome fields where although his howling makes the hearer's blood run cold, his footfalls make no sound. But such an encounter might bring you the worst of luck. It is even said to meet him is to be warned that your death will occur before the end of the year. So you will do well to shut your eyes if you hear, hear him howling. Shut them even if you are uncertain whether it is the dog fiend or the voice of the wind you hear. You may perhaps doubt his existence and, like other learned folks, tell us that his story is nothing but the old Scandinavian myth of the Black Hound of Odin brought to us by the Vikings. So this is this is something we're going to get into that, you know, these these tales of these black dogs, these black hounds go back. They, they're, they're stretched across centuries and many different cultures all the way back to the Vikings, as, as this guy wrote about. But we'll get into that in, in just a few minutes. Um, as he said, shucks are known to roam sort of liminal areas, especially areas where the veil is thin and where there might be some sort of association with death. Legend has found them in cemeteries and graveyards, marshes, bogs, secluded footpaths, crossroads of paths, and on the site of former gallows. So, you know, places that are heavily, heavily associated with death and sort of have that sort of energy looming around them. And because they're known to prowl in these areas, it's thought that black shucks are a link between the world of the living and the other world, whatever that may be. Reports of shucks date back hundreds, if not thousands of years, but opinions seem to differ on when the first documented account account of a shuck occurred. But one source I found claims that the first known written text that describes a shuck dates back to 1127. 
again, with all this folklore stuff, it's kind of hard. Or I, I, for some people, for professional folklorists, it's probably not hard to pin down these exact dates. But for someone who is just sifting through, you know, page after page on the internet, it's hard to know where a lot of this stuff comes from because right. anyone can just say anything on the internet. But I did find some accounts that I was into and I thought worth were worth mentioning. In 1691, there was a ship sailing from an English ship sailing from the UK to Virginia, and they saw black dogs and cats. They noted, but they saw several black dogs on the ship just before it wrecked. So that's got to be pretty fucking creepy. Like, yeah. <laughs> assume I, yeah. I, I couldn't find out exactly <laughs> where they wrecked, but I think it was like at least a couple weeks into the journey, and all of a sudden these black dogs are showing up that were never there before. And that were not on the ship. Yeah, they're just like yeah, that's horrifying. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like they're just there during the journey, during voyage, they started showing up. Yes, during the voyage. Yeah. And this is this is in the in the late uh, 17th century, so this is like a time when. I think people took folklore a bit more seriously. So these people probably damn well knew what the sighting of a black shuck meant, and I'm sure they were terrified. Is that, um, am I, we can cut this out if I'm wrong, but is that not uh, the way that chapter in Dracula ends when the ship shows up with everybody dead, they see a a black dog run off the ship? That is exactly how it ends. And that is my favorite part of that, (laughs) that, that chapter. For those of you unfamiliar, it's the, it's what that movie that came out the summer last voyage of the Demeter was based on. It's a chapter in um, Bram Stoker's Dracula written from the point of view of the ship's captain's log. And basically Dracula ends up on a ship that's traveling to London. Everyone dies. The ship runs aground and the only living creature when they, when they board the ship is a black dog and it jumps off and just like runs into the heart of London. And yeah, yeah, that is exactly what it is. And I love that part. And it's, makes this this alleged story of these people in 1691 even more terrifying right it's yeah 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 it's it's interesting parallels yeah and and lore absolutely another story comes out of yorkshire and and it's said that there is a black dog that haunts the ivalet or evilette bridge in swaledale yorkshire the dog is allegedly headless and it's seen leaping over the side (laughs) of the bridge and into the water it could also be heard barking at night, and it's totally considered a death omen in this situation. Uh, locals say that anybody who sees the dog has died within a year. So the last reported sighting of that dog it was about 100 years ago, but it seemed like it was a pretty active sight for a while leading up to that point. So, yeah, I mean, just like, man, can you imagine, like, you're walking home from the grocery store, and you've got, like, <laughs> one more bag than you should really have. Like, everybody knows that feeling. Like, you have too much shit, but you're, like, trying to make it home, and you're, like, struggling, and you're uncomfortable, and then you see a headless black dog run down the brick and jump into the water. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, man. And you live there, so you know exactly what that means, and you're just like, right, yeah, God uh-huh. damn it. Like, <laughs> And I've got an extra bag. Like, you're just like... God, this fucking yeah, sucks. Yeah, this is so much more gnarly than than a mangy dog. Yeah, it it, it truly is. <laughs> and then in this and like based on the accounts that I saw of this, this wasn't like, oh, this bad luck, like you might die. These people in this town seemingly believed like the clock starts now. You've got three hundred and sixty five days somewhere Ugh. in there. <laughs> like, what a rough day that <laughs> that would be. <laughs> 
an author named Mark Norman wrote in his book that was that's called Black Dog Folklore, which was one of my main sources for this. It's a really cool book. Uh, he wrote that while not all dogs are harbingers of death like the black chuck, there are still a lot of reasons that dogs are associated with death in general. In some cultures, it's believed that dogs can see death approaching. You know, you've heard stories. A lot of times it's like a cat or a dog where maybe it's in so- some sort of hospice care and, and they... They think, oh, like this dog or this cat all of a sudden will wait at the foot of someone's bed when their time, when they're about to expire. And this this isn't something that, you know, came to be in modern times. This is folklore that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's said that not only are dogs able to see death, but that they can see other spirits and gods that are imperceptible to humans and that the dogs do not like these spirits. Um there's another account from England from Wiltshire in the late 1800s. Uh, this was written from someone's journal or someone's memoir, and it said, When my mother died, we had a very favorite dog, a fox terrier, who was greatly attached. All other persuasions would not induce him to enter her bedroom. His abject terror was so great that we gave up all attempts to coax him into the room. Coax him into the room, and they're ta- the, the context here is their mother was sort of on the deathbed, and the dog, w- her favorite dog, wouldn't come be in the room with her. But on the morning of her death, the dog was asleep in the kitchen and suddenly jumped up, and with a cry and his tail between his legs, ran under a chair and hid that hid there and would not come out for the for the rest of the day. Wouldn't come out. And they had a servant. This family had a servant who w- was trying to explain to them that this was clearly a sign that their mother was going to die this day this day because the dog was acting like as if it had seen the angel of death come into the house which was Jesus. a part of their folklore and then what happened is the mother passed away that day so yeah it's been you know this is this is folklore that goes back a long time of, that dogs can see spirits and particularly death and sense when death is coming i mean that would be a real bummer to be on your deathbed and your favorite dog just like won't approach you and uh, yeah that's i mean I don't know. Dogs. I'm looking at my dog right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It would be real bummed. It would be a real, real bummer. Uh, and these these ideas of, of dogs seeing spirits and seeing death and, and other beings of the underworld aren't specific to, you know, the English. Uh, in, in Islamic religion, it's believed that black dogs can see Ariel, the angel of death. And in ancient Scandinavia, it was thought that dogs could follow the movements of the sinister death goddess Heel. And in Welsh mythology, it's thought that black dogs could see the death-bringing hounds of Anwyn. It's a uh, uh, entity I'm not totally familiar with, but you can see that the, the idea that these dogs right. can, can sense these otherworldly beings is, is kind of spread out all over the world. Uh, at right. one point when I was researching black shucks, I read a suggested reason that these dogs are often associated with cemeteries and graveyards, and it's because people allegedly used to believe that the first person buried in the cemetery would be required to watch over the dead in that cemetery forever, you know, through eternity. And because of this belief, oftentimes a dog would be buried in the cemetery first before a human, and then it would be the dog's soul that would get trapped to that place eternally while it watched over the dead humans who lay there. And these dogs are oftentimes referred to as church grims or just grims, which which means guardian, essentially. And it's thought that ghost animals in or around a churchyard must be the specters of the animals that were used in this situation. It's also speculated that in some of these instances, these animal, these ghostly spectral animals around churchyards were actually used as 
foundation sacrifices, meaning that the remains of a dog or a cat would be put into the foundation of a building as a sacrifice to support the build. And it's speculated that this was practiced in British culture, but there isn't much evidence to support that. But there is evidence of this being practiced in ancient Greece, dating back to uh, the 13th century BCE. So, you know, these are real beliefs that people held. Like, the the animal sacrifice in the foundation is wild. That's some real occultist right. shit, you know. But the I, I, <laughs> I particularly like the idea that, like, they thought that whoever was buried in the cemetery or graveyard first would get stuck there eternally, and they were like, you know who would be good at that is a dog. Like, we don't have to put it yeah, in there. I love I, that. That's, like, my favorite piece of this folklore. I love spectral guardian cemetery dog. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's so that's the grim. That's where the word grim comes from. It's amazing. That's, like... Yeah, like I said, my favorite part of this folklore. So with absolutely you know, with so many cultures holding similar beliefs about dogs, especially black dogs, and the relationships with the underworld, it's no surprise that a bit of this lore has morphed into something ominous and sinister over the centuries. Perhaps, you know, it's nothing. Perhaps it's just stories. Or maybe dogs really are the intermediary factor between our world and the underworld. I am okay with that. If it were cats, I'd be okay with that as well. But I, I am totally fine with dogs sort of keeping the, uh, keep holding the line between our world and whatever world we can't see. The next bit of folklore, of harbinger folklore that we're going to talk about are banshees. And banshees are female spirits, particularly in Irish folklore, who are said to herald the death of a family member by wailing or shrieking or just screaming into the darkness of night. The word banshee comes from the old Irish word benside, meaning a woman of the fairy mound or fairy woman. As the name implies, banshees are connected to fairy mounds and that dot the Irish countryside and, and are very prevalent in Irish and Celtic folklore. So, you know, banshees are said to be of the realm of the fae. And banshees can appear in various forms. Sometimes it's a beautiful woman in a shroud, a pale woman in a white dress. She might have silver hair or red hair, or it might be an old woman with frightening eyes, dressed in all black with a veil covering her face. Stories of banshees have been traced back to, like, the 8th century. It's believed that some of these stories were based on a medieval tradition in which women would sing sorrowful songs to lament someone's death. And these women, known as keeners, were essentially hired by the family of someone who passed away to come in and sing these beautiful, sad songs. And according to legend, sometimes these women would accept alcohol as payment for their songs and therefore were said to be sinners. And (laughs) sinners are, of course, punished by spending as a banshee in this case. So according to these folktales, banshees never cause death. Like we said about shucks and many of these other things, they just serve as a warning and are a true harbinger. Really interesting, I guess, root of this folklore here, these women that you would just pay to come to your funeral, pay them in alcohol sometimes, and then all of a sudden they're a sinner and they're entrapped in being a banshee forever. Yeah, I love this horseshit. This, hey, how about you take this booze as payment? Oh, you took that booze as payment? Sinner. Now you're a sinner. You're a fucking yeah. sinner. God damn. <laughs> to all women out there across all time, I, I am sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry for this and so many other things. 
In some Celtic legends, it's said that every single family has their own banshee. Well, other others believe that it's only certain families that have them, and, and it's actually thought that families with, like, very typical Irish surnames have them. So families that have, like, an O, like O'Connell, O'Grady, or families that have, like, a Mick in their last name, last name like McDonald or McGovern, these families are alleged to have a, a familial banshee. This, this harbinger that just sticks with their family through all time and will warn them when someone in the family is about to pass away. <coughs> Sometimes banshees will wail for someone who is seemingly in perfect health, and then all of a sudden they die in some sort of freak accidents just a couple of days after the banshee's appearance. So, you know, people, will, people in these tales will see the banshee and they don't necessarily know who it's going to be because it might not. It might be like I see the banshee, and it's a warning for someone else in my family, or it might be I see it and it's a warning for me. And even yeah, if I see it, I might brush it off like I'm fine. I'm I'm doing totally fine. And then all of a sudden, have a freak accident, you know, where you slip into some quicksand in an Irish bog and you're never seen again. I don't know. One one particularly old and well-known banshee story. In, in Celtic and Irish lore is something that was told in the memoirs of a woman named Lady Fanshawe. And in the mid-1600s, Lady Fanshawe accompanied her husband, uh, his name was Sir Richard, to pay a visit to a friend who resided in an ancient castle in the Irish countryside. And this castle was pretty, pretty stereotypical castle. It was surrounded by a moat. And on at midnight, on the first night of their visit, Lady Fanshawe was awakened by a ghastly and supernatural scream. She jolted up out of bed and looked around her room, and all of a sudden there, beheld in the moonlight, was a female face and part of a body, so a partial body apparition, hovering uh, just outside the bedroom's window, kind of in, just in the, in the window, half in, half out of, her, out of the room. And given the fact that the bedroom she was staying in was high in one of the castle's towers and there was very literally a moat below it, it seemed impossible this woman you know, was, was part of our world. It had to be something supernatural or of, of some, some other type of being. She's the uh, Lady Fanshawe described the face of a, a beautiful young woman, but she was very pale. She said her hair was reddish and kind of loose and disheveled. And she also happened to mention that the dress she was wearing was sort of, uh, it wasn't period appropriate for the time. It was something that she called ancient Irish. So it was, it was something that had been in style many years before this sighting. So the apparition, apparition lingered there for some time, and then suddenly it just vanished with two more shrieks that sounded just like the one that had awoken the lady in the first place. And in the morning, she told her friend, her host, about the, the frightening and unsettling encounter. And she was shocked when he did not seem surprised at all. And he actually seemed to be expecting to hear this. And he knew exactly who this spectral visitor was. And he went on to tell the lady that that night, a near relation of the family had expired in a different part of the castle. He said, we disguised our certain expectation of the event from you, lest it should throw a cloud over the cheerful reception which was your due. Now, before such an event happens in this family or castle, the female specter whom you have seen is always visible. She is believed to be the spirit of a woman of inferior rank, whom one of my ancestors degraded himself by marrying, and whom afterwards, to escape the dishonor done to his family, he caused to be drowned in the moat. Again, I'm sorry to women everywhere because this guy, this 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 man basically <laughs> yeah. said that this his family banshee was the spirit 
of a woman who someone in his lineage married and it was thought that she was not uh, not the type of woman that this man should be marrying and he was disgraced and acting out of feeling disgraced like that he caused this his wife to be drowned in the moat of the castle so yeah man I would fucking haunt that castle for the rest of my life as well yeah that was real bleak super bleak so similar stories of banshees can be found throughout Irish and Celtic folklore, especially banshees, like we said, who seem to attach themselves to a single family for one one reason or another. And, I, you know, I have a, a side of my family. My mother's side is, like, very, very Irish. In fact, her maiden name is has a mick in it. And I have never asked her if, if there's any, any lore about banshees in my family. My grandmother, my mom's mom, did a ton of research. She was very into her heritage. She did a ton of like ancestral research family tree type stuff and I feel like I need to dig into that and see if there's any any lore of a banshee in my family because that's uh, again a very fun wild piece of folklore about a harbinger who you really probably don't want to see yeah I didn't know uh, any of this really uh, I mean I, I vaguely understood that a banshee was like a was a spirit and it was a woman and it screamed and right yeah um i, I guess it, i i didn't either before recently. yeah this is super interesting i mean i i understood that i think i knew a little bit i knew that it it was probably the scream was thought to be heralding a death in the family but i definitely didn't know that that banshees are believed to stick to one family and in like, it, like right like right. i said some some people think that every irish family has them some people think that only certain do you know i'm sure Perhaps there's a case to be made that maybe only certain shitty Irish families have them. People who have ancestors who drown their wives in castle moats, like those type of people, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably yeah, have yeah, yeah. But yeah, if you is, have a reason to be haunted, maybe. Exactly. Yes, seems like a proper candidate to have a familial banshee. Um, yeah, super, super interesting piece of folklore. I don't know. I, I love. I just love all of this weird folklore so so much. Like the further I get into studying and reading about weird shit the more i'm drawn to like this side of things because this is where it all you know this is where every weird story really stems from like modern or religions you know these sorts of things i feel like all have roots that are like that are into this sort of stuff and i i really just love it Next on our list of harbingers is something that people are probably a little more versed in, or at least somewhat versed in, and that is the doppelganger. And doppelganger is a German word that translates to double goer or double walker, referring to some sort of like wraith or apparition that casts no shadow and is a replica of a living person. So, yeah, doppelgangers, I feel like. Again, I had some familiarity with, but I most my biggest source for this section is actually an article that my good friend Yale Grotman wrote from the Weird Wide Web podcast, and it was in Strange Days Volume Six, and he wrote a fantastic article about doppelgangers, and it kind of opened my eyes to like, oh yeah, this is also something that is a piece of folklore that almost everybody knows what it is. Probably everybody is at least somewhat familiar. And I feel like you know I've used the word like, oh Vince, I I swear I saw your doppelganger at the store or whatever but didn't really know what the foreshadowing of a doppelganger 
implied. And it's widely understood, at least in, in German folklore, that these entities are said to be bad omens or signs of impending death. Obviously, there's, that's the theme for today. And references to these dark doubles can be found throughout history in many cultures, though Doppelganger is by far the widely most used and recognizable name. But in Irish cultures, for instance, these ominous entities are called fetches. And yeah, this is the idea of you see a double walker, which is a really cool thing, or just like a, a replica of a living person walking around. And in that case, it, unlike the Banshee, there is no mystery there of who is going to catch the wrath of this being. It's if it's said that if someone sees a doppelganger of you, you are going to befall some sort of terrible luck, possibly even death. So yeah, again, not not the greatest not the greatest omen, I suppose. Um, the story that Yale wrote about that I wanted to get into in his article about doppelgangers is, uh, I feel like you'll appreciate this, Vince, is it's about Percy Shelley, who was Mary Shelley's husband. And he was, he's now regarded as one of the great English romantic poets, though he lived a life of great hardship and tragedy. He's most notable, notable for being the husband of Mary Shelley, like I said, who was the author of Frankenstein. Growing up, Percy was incessantly tormented by his schoolmates and at a young age decided to elope with his first wife, who he then quickly abandoned. She sometimes later, sometime later turned up dead in a lake. She was pregnant and had been drowned. Terrible. Not necessarily saying that Percy had anything to do with it, but this was just sort of this, the kind of bad luck that seemed to follow him around. And he went on to have many failed love affairs, uh, love affairs until he eventually met and married his wife, Mary. Mary and Percy had four children together, but losing all, but lost all but one of them, sadly. And while Mary and Percy were together, I know, this guy had a terrible, <laughs> terrible luck. While Mary and Percy were married, they would also lose Mary's sister to suicide. So just a, just really bad luck. And this is not, we haven't even gotten to the doppelganger yet. So close, right. close to his death, Percy confessed to his wife, Mary, that he had been seeing his own doppelganger on multiple occasions. He said that he had just been seeing it around and he was familiar with that omen, what that was an omen for and what that unfortunately probably meant for him. And on one of these instances, he recalls coming face to face with the entity while he was standing out on a terrace. And the, the doppelganger stood unsettling close to him and asked, how long do you mean to be content before vanishing? <laughs> what? Uh, what, a, what? Yeah. How long do you mean to be content? He knew that this was not a good sign. And around that time, Mary also observed who she thought to be Percy uh, crossing. Uh, one day he crossed in front of the window and entered into the house. Only he wasn't there. And this happened several times. Um, walking outside, she discovered that Percy was nowhere to be seen, and she was pretty shaken to find out that he wasn't even home at the time. So these were, you know, these instances kind of sort of culminating and building up. And then the very last incident Percy recalled occurred on a beach with the same entity, you know, his doppelganger, the same one who had who had asked him that ominous question, "How long do you mean to be content?" This time, the, the the double, the double walker, didn't say anything, but it just pointed toward the water. They were at, standing on the beach, and it just pointed toward the water. Not long after that, Percy's body would be found washed up on that shore, that same shore he had drowned after a sailing accident at the age of 29. 
So he allegedly told someone about, you know, told his wife about right. these, all of these instances, but particularly this one where he said he was standing on the beach and the entity just pointed toward the water. And then that's where he drowned sometime later. So that I think is an incredibly creepy story about doppelgangers and definitely probably one of the darker stories you can find on the subject, but crazy that this is like like I said it's kind of a doppelganger is kind of a thing that people are familiar with but I have to have to bet that most people don't realize that it's said to be such a terrible frightening bad omen exactly what I was just gonna say is that like the banshee I felt yeah I I know what doppelgangers are it's it's not great it's a copy of a person you see them around it's uncanny Um, it's weird but right 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 didn't understand that it was this uh ominous very ominous i mean like the banshee these sightings of doppelgangers probably shouldn't be taken lightly i mean what seems like a harmless coincidence could possibly turn out to be something far more deadly So our last harbinger, and I think what was the impetus of this episode in general, is I know one of your favorite Pete's, I I mean, it's not a cryptid, it's favorite folkloric creatures, characters, and that is, of course, the Nain Rouge, and the Nain Rouge is a story that comes out of Michigan, close to where Vince is now, and yeah, I don't know, I know you've been a fan of this, this creature for a while, I know that you, like, actively... Are, are constantly looking for new Nain Rouge stories and that sort of stuff. Like, you love this guy. Yeah, do love it. There is a, uh, a Nain Rouge festival every year that happens in Detroit that um, uh, it's pretty awesome. It's 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 super joyous. It's uh, people turn out for it. Um, it's really awesome. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um I have never been. I need to get to it. I have heard about it before. I, I do talk about it a little bit in, in our little write-up here. Yeah, this is this story is cool. So if you're asking yourself who or what the name Rouge is, don't worry, because I am going to tell you. I'm here to tell you. The name Rouge, also known as the Demon of the Strait, is a legendary creature hailing from De- Detroit, Michigan. And the name Rouge is said to be a harbinger in similar ways to the things that we have talked about though not specifically a harbinger of death it's more of a harbinger of misfortune and sometimes it's just for the person who sees it who happens to cross paths with the creature other times it's believed to be bad luck that's going to be stricken upon the entire motor city so there are instances in here that they people believe that the name rouge was sighted and it was an omen of bad luck for the entire city of detroit and the name rouge's origins are said to be derived from tales of the luton which is a type of hobgoblin from normandy france for those who don't know uh, detroit was heavily influenced i mean it was founded by french uh by the French and, and has heavily heavily has heavy French influences. So it's believed that the idea of the Rouge came from the Luton, which is a hobgoblin from France, and it kind of is mashed up with indigenous legends of an impish offspring of the stone god. So what likely started off as a mostly French influenced tale has sort of morphed into an amalgamation of the French and indigenous uh, native lore over the years. 
The Legend of the Nain Rouge was first pu- first published in a book called Legends Le Detroit, which was published in 1883. In the book, authors James Campbell and Marie Caroline Watson Hamlin trace the beginning of the story back to uh, a one night, uh, a night of March 10th, 1701. On that evening in St. Louis, Quebec, a party was being held, and one of the reasons for the party was to honor a man named Antoine de Lamoth Cadillac. Cadillac was a French explorer, a trapper, and a trader from New, New France, which stretched from eastern Canada all the way down to Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico. Cadillac rose through the, the political ranks quickly. He was made commander of uh, a fort in St. Ignace, Michigan in 1694. I'm going to skip over some of these French names because I don't speak French, so my apologies. Seven years after that, in 1701, he went to on to found uh, the fort of Detroit, basically, it, which would become the city of Detroit eventually. So he founded the first fort in what eventually became the city of Detroit. And it was during that same year that this party was being thrown, and he was being honored for his successes that steered him towards his destiny of eventually founding Detroit. As partygoers reveled in the festivities well into the night, an unexpected guest showed up. To the surprise and the delight of party guests, an elderly woman claiming to be a fortune teller had knocked at the door. And in the book Legends Le Le Detroit, the woman was described as having a strange and bizarre appearance. She was unusually tall, had a dark complexion, and was said to have restless and glittery eyes. On her shoulder was perched a black cat, and immediately upon her arrival, half a dozen party guests thrust out their palms, eager to hear their fortunes. One after another, she read. When she hesitated, the cat would lick her ear, and the more superstitious of the partygoers thought that this was the devil giving her information. Her knowledge seemed almost supernatural, and when it came time for Cadillac's turn, he told the woman, "'See what you can tell me for the future. I care not for the past.'" And this next bit I is is from this book, uh, Legends Le, Le de Troyes, Legends, Le, Le, Legends of Detroit. And I, I think I just want to read it straight from the book for you so you can hear how it was worded. So, earnestly scanning his bold, energetic face, she took a brazen basin into which she poured from a curiously carved silver vial which she drew from her breast, a clear, heavy liquid like quicksilver, and holding La Moth, La Moth Cadillac's hand, gazed into the basin. Sir, she said, yours is a strange destiny. A dangerous journey you will soon undertake. You will found a great city which will one day have more inhabitants than New France now possesses. Many children will nestle your fireside. She paused, and Cadillac, thoroughly interested, her, interested bade her to continue. Sir Cadillac, I wish you had not commanded me to go on, for dark clouds are arising, and I see dimly your star. In years to come, your colony will be the scene of strife and bloodshed. The Indians will be treacherous, the hated English will struggle for its possession, but under a new flag it will release it will reach a height of prosperity which you never in your wildest dreams pictured. You will bask in a sunnier climate, but France will claim your last sigh. Shall my children inherit my possessions, Cadillac? asked your future in theirs lies in your own hands beware of undue ambition it will mar all your plans appease the name rouge beware of offending him should you be thus unfortunate not a vestige of your inheritance will be given to your heirs your name will be scarcely known in the city you founded all were deeply impressed by the prophecy of this woman save him whom it was addressed so 
This is the first mention of the name Rouge, and this woman who said that she could read fortunes told uh, Cadillac that he had a lot to look forward to, but he needed to appease the name Rouge and not offend him. Otherwise, his whole empire is going to crumble. His main concern was if his his children would get his inheritance and if they would be a, you know, a successful family. And she basically said, if you piss off the name Rouge, absolutely not. A short time later, Cadillac would embark on a dangerous journey, traversing the Great Lakes, making his way south to fulfill his destiny. Fort Pontchartrain, which was the fort in Detroit, was founded in late July, and that laid the groundwork for the future city of Detroit. This was already part of the woman's prediction coming true. Some years later, after the city had begun to expand vastly and Cadillac continued to revel in his success, he would fulfill the rest of his destiny. One evening, while on a walk with his wife, they overheard a conversation between two men they passed. Things cannot run very long thus. My wife saw a few days ago La Petite Nain Rouge. Cadillac's wife was stunned. The fortune teller had warned Cadillac of La Petite Nain Rouge years ago, and now it seemed that it had been spotted in their own city. Cadillac assured her that there was nothing to it, and they continued their walk home. Suddenly, a grotesque and impish creature appeared before them, blocking their path. The creature grinned at them with a sinister sneer. Cadillac struck the dwarf with his cane, shouting, Get away! The dwarf took off running, laughing all the way. Cadillac had been warned not to offend the name Rouge, but had decided not to heed the advice, something he surely came to regret. A short while after that encounter, Cadillac's life took a drastic turn. It seemed the rest of the fortune teller's prediction would also come true. He lost his fortune. He lost his business. He was called back to Quebec, where he faced charges of trafficking alcohol and furs. He was also charged with abuse of authority a couple years later. And he was given orders to head to Louisiana, but he didn't do that. Instead, he sailed back to France. By this time, he had lost all of his money, all of his power. And just as the fortune teller warned him, his family inherited none of his property or wealth. So this is the story of Cadillac's encounter with the Nain Rouge, and many have asked, could his fall from grace really be from dis- disrespecting the little impish creature that allegedly crossed his path? Path Is the demon of the strait actually a harbinger of doom and bad luck? Many people believe the story of Cadillac was just the first occurrence of tragedy striking in Detroit, and that this creature would go on to sort of set the tone for many, many bad things that would happen there. And there is a full long list of these appearances of the Nain Rouge after Cadillac, which are all pretty, pretty interesting. So I'll go through those and then we'll we'll get into what we think about the Nain Rouge in this story. On July 30th, 1763, the Nain Rouge was seen before the Battle of Bloody Run, which was a battle fought during... Pontiac's War. Pontiac's War was a rebellion by Native Americans who were dissatisfied with British rule in the aftermath of the French and Indian War. The Battle of Bloody Run happened the day after the Nain Rouge appeared. So he appeared, or the creature appeared on the 30th, and the battle took place place on the 31st. The Battle of Bloody Run was named after the creek at which it was fought, which ran red with the blood of up to 50 dead British soldiers who were killed by Chief Pontiac's men. After the battle, the Nain Rouge was allegedly seen dancing amongst the corpses. Fast forward to 1805, and the Demon of the Strait was seen again by several witnesses as it raced through the streets of Detroit before the city was all but completely destroyed by the Great Fire of 1805. 
The fire started on the morning of June 11th. It is presumed that it started in or in the immediate vicinity of the stables of a local baker named John Harvey. One of the first buildings that were set ablaze was a nearby barn from which the flames were easily spread to other flammable wooden structures. The city at the time was nowhere near its current size, obviously, but it was still the home to about 600 people and thus the settlement didn't have adequate firefighting equipment and and they pretty much just relied on like a bucket brigade there weren't any casualties from that disaster but the entire city was raised to the ground it was that was it one one fire took out the the entire city the Nain Rouge was spotted again just seven years later in 1812 when british forces attacked the american controlled fort uh, American-controlled Fort Detroit. And the general in charge of that fort was named William Hall, and he was the governor of the Michigan Territory at the time. He was forced to surrender the entire city to the British after what was called the Siege of Detroit. And when General Hall finally surrendered, he said that he had seen the Nain Rouge in the fog just before he turned himself over to the British. He said the Red Dwarf was laughing and leering, pointing at him. After the battle, William Hall was court-martialed, convicted of military incompetence, and sentenced to death, but he eventually received a pardon from President James Madison. So this instance, it was sort of, uh, the Nain Rouge kind of was not bad luck to the entire city, but more particularly this, this man, General William Hall. In 1884, a woman reported being attacked by a creature resembling a baboon with a horned head, brilliant eyes, and a devilish leer on his face. Many people pointed the finger at the Nain Rouge, saying that this description fit the, the impish creature to a T. Fast forward quite a ways to 1967, and the Nain Rouge was spotted just before the start of the infamous 1967 Detroit riot, a.k.a. the 12th Street riot, one of the bloodiest urban uprisings in United States history. The riots began on July 23rd, 1967, when black Detroit residents clashed with the Detroit PD after a raid on an unlicensed after-hours bar. The riot lasted five days and resulted in the deaths of over 15 people, well, upwards of 500 people were wounded. So the Nain Rouge had been spotted just before this, this siege on a speakeasy. Just nine years later, in 1976, two workers from the Detroit Edison Power Company saw the Nain Rouge shimmy up a utility pole while they were on their lunch break. Mistaking the imp for a child, they screamed at it to stop, but watched in amazement as it dropped to the ground completely unharmed. It leered at the men before running away. And the next day, the city of Detroit was hammered by a historic ice storm that left over half a million residents without power. So this was, again, two, two men saw this thing. They thought it was a child. And then the next day, some, some terrible weather just hammered Detroit, shutting the whole city down. And then uh, the, last, the last instance of a Nain Rouge sighting that I could find was in 1996 when two men reported seeing the creature fleeing from the scene of a car burglary. So a little bit less uh, of a large citywide impact in that one. But, you know, that's like almost 200 years worth of Nain Rouge stories that – you know, some people would argue it's just a folk tale that has become an urban legend specific to the Detroit area, but I do think it is a very interesting story, and, and I mean, it, it's worth telling for sure. Right, and I think what is so interesting about it, well, part of what is so interesting about it for me, and the, you mentioned earlier that I do kind of regularly look for, like, new Nyan Rouge uh, sightings or stories is that like yeah 1996 1976 1967 like these are recent stories when we're talking about the first one being back in the uh, 1700s totally. and like the 
big one that I know is the 1805 story uh, before the Detroit fire. Um, and then also before the Detroit riots is another big one that I feel like is those are like the prevalent stories that I keep finding over and over again when I look. But like, yeah, these more recent stories with this folklore that stretches back hundreds of years is not a thing that is super common in 2023 with folklore. Um, You know, I think the one black dog, the headless version of the black dog hasn't been seen in over a hundred years, you know, like super good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 1996. I mean, yeah, sure. It's 30 years ago, but that's not that long ago when you're talking about these things stretch back. I mean, Dane Rouge is a couple hundred years, but you know, it's in, in company of these stories that stretch back far beyond that. Yeah. I think you're totally right. I think that that's very interesting. And I'm sure that there are more people who have probably, had encounters or believe that they've had encounters with this creature since 1996 but again it's sort of hard to sort through a lot of that stuff on the internet i've realized recently that i have this maybe not great habit of like you know i have stacks and stacks and stacks of books about all this kind of weird shit and for whatever reason like if i'm reading in a book that in 1996 two men saw the name rouge fleeing from the scene of a car burglary even though i don't know where that was sourced from i find myself believing it easier than if i'm reading on reddit that someone saw x y and z happen it's like i I mean it's which is like not anything to say about the people who post their encounters on reddit but but there's just something everything's just become so convoluted on the internet it's sort of hard to like pin these stories down but you know the story from 1990s it feels like i don't know getting a book actually made and printed and distributed is a pain in (laughs) the ass and it feels right (laughs) feels so much easier to, if you just want to lie on reddit you know, it's a significantly totally. easier task yeah so uh, this is <laughs> this is something that i've realized i do and i'm i have been trying to uh, i've been sort of grappling with like how to strike a balance with like not wanting to immediately yeah. dismiss every crazy story i read on the internet so you know i i think that Andrews is is very interesting for several reasons and something that i kind of thought of while i was researching this and writing up this this sort of outline is that maybe the name rouge was just a creature of legend and folklore and it's possible that as the legend of the red dwarf grew it became more and more real maybe like a tulpa i don't know if you're familiar with the term tulpa but it's the concept of like a materialized being or thought form basically something that wasn't real but then through the power generated via like collective consciousness becomes real so it's believed that like if enough people believe that something exists that thought form can be an ener- become an energy that's like able to manifest. So maybe like the original, you know, uh, moth to Cadillac story is again, apologies to our French listeners, but maybe his original stories was just like a folk tale. But, and then maybe it became, Oh, well I heard about, I heard that someone saw it, you know, before the battle of bloody run in 1763. And I heard that someone saw it before, the the uh, fire in 1805 and so on and so forth and maybe this thing took on you know maybe it was able to manifest like a tulpa in some way from people more people telling the story and believing in it I don't know that was just a thought I had I haven't really seen anyone you know present that idea before sure but. sure yeah I no but I mean with hundreds of years of people believing in a thing to the point where there is a yearly festival with a huge celebratory parade. Like, that's the type of shit that brings a tulpa on. And obviously Detroit is a city that's seen more than its 
share of tragedy and bad luck. It has a really long storied history ripe with strife and struggle, and I can totally see why some people might want to blame this history, this bad luck, on something like the Nain Rouge. It just feels like it's much easier to blame all this bad luck on a mischievous little red dwarf whose legend has grown alongside the city itself. I mean, the legend of this creature is as old as the city of Detroit, which is also really interesting and not something that I Truly, am personally yeah. aware of with a lot of other legends of folktales or cryptids or whatever it may be. You know, the legend of the Nain Rouge has grown so much, in fact, that now, as Vince said, they hold an, a, a parade. The city itself holds a parade. Not to, I was going to say in honor of the Nain Rouge, but it's not exactly that. It's called the March March of the Nain Rouge, and it's an annual event in which Detroiters actually like march the Nain Rouge out of their city, and they banish it for a full year. And accord, according to, right. to the tradition, right. parade participants and spectators are encouraged to wear different costumes each year, so that when the Nain Rouge returns, he will not he won't recognize the people who ousted him from the city last year, and he won't seek some sort of personal vengeance on you. So you're supposed to like dress up. In a disguise every awesome. year, so like he won't recognize you when he's here year after year, and they, and yeah, so this has become this festival where they chase the Nain Rouge out of Detroit in order to try to keep him and the bad luck that he brings at bay, which is really fun, and I, I actually really really love cities yeah. that embrace this sort of folklore. It's like there's uh, this is like a, a separate conversation, but there's so when you when you when I do research about things like this, like the Black Shuck and whatever. The, the folklore from European countries is so runs so deep and you can find folklore that dates back so deep but unfortunately we live in a colonized country where like the folklore of the peoples that were here before us were was intentionally eradicated which is a fucking tragedy so like we don't have this super rich folklore like we should we took it away from the people who had it who were here so I just any sort of any bit of folklore and I'm not saying that the legend of the name Rouge replaces indigenous folklore by any means but I do just love when I see a city that is that is accepting and leaning into the folklore and not trying to you know push it off to the side or eradicate it ha- as it has been done to other peoples in the past so I just really love the story of the name Rouge I love I mean maybe that's a silly way to put. I love something that's brought so much strife to a city, but it is just such a fun, fun story. And I know you feel the same. Absolutely. And I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it is this weird thing where, um, it is, it's, it's a, it's a story about a harbinger of misfortune, but people have really latched onto it in this like very fun and like, you know, that even, even though they are marching the, uh, Nayan Rouge out of the city, it is still this like very big, super fun energy and super fun event. Like it's yeah, it's it's interesting. And I I I really enjoy that it is part of like the place that we are from as well. Like that's yes. also very exciting. I mean, we're not from Detroit, but we are but from still, close yeah, enough to it. Yeah. We're from we're from Michigan and and it's not like again, like what I was saying, it's not like you find a ton of these events happening all over this country because it's just that's just not part of our foundation. But yeah, I mean, even if you don't believe in the legend of Nain Rouge, I think it certainly doesn't hurt to participate in the ritual of of driving it out of the city just to be on the safe side. And I think they do that in the spring. I'm going to have to try to come home one year and, and yeah. we'll have to go to it. Like, I, that seems super fun. And also, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's a, there's a, a writer and, a, and an, uh, an anomalous researcher from Detroit named John Tenney who is kind of infamous at this point 
for being like a, a really well researched individual on all things weird and paranormal and he actually started at some point like uh like an anti driving the name he started his own he goes out there on the day where they drive the name rouge out of detroit and starts a counter parade that's like keep the name rouge in detroit and they march through the crowd in the other direction it's usually a much smaller group but he his whole thing is like no we need to like embrace this monster that we have in our city and like make right. him a part of make him a detroiter so he has this whole like counterculture movement to the march of the name rouge where he's saying like keep the name rouge in detroit which is amazing super amazing did not know that happened didn't know john tenney was from detroit Oh yeah, yeah. He lives in. Um, I mean, I'd say this like I know him, but yeah, he lives in. He lives in Royal Oak or somewhere. He's he's a Mich- like lived in Michigan his whole life. Yeah, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, if you're not familiar with John Tenney, you should check out some of his work. He's very interesting and and yeah, that's our that's our episode on Harbingers. This was really fun. I, I the more and more I research for Strange Days and for this podcast, the more and more I realize like I love the folklore aspect of all the weirdness the most. You know, there's it, it's times get exciting when there's like ufo stuff in the news but it also like gets exhausting when people want to like critique every every and i and i am am guilty of this as well i already mentioned it critique every weird experience that someone has or they want to critique the quote-unquote disclosure we get from the government about ufos or whatever it may be and i feel like when something falls under the umbrella of folklore it kind of gets this like free pass to be as fucking weird and fantastical as it can possibly be and i absolutely love it I love it, and I love... Honestly, I think that it gets a little bit more discounted than it should, and you and I have talked about this before, and we are, again, not breaking ground here. A lot of people have talked about this, but, like, it all feels like it's kind of part of the same thing. We talked... We've talked about, like, you know, fairies or whatever, um, and the Banshees, again, being drawn back to that land of fairy. um, Totally. I think that there is a lot of uh, insight. I don't want to necessarily truth or wisdom or whatever, but I think there's a lot of insight in this folklore about what all of these events are or could be or where they are from that just kind of gets overlooked. Um, totally. and yeah, it's, and I, it's, I, it's, I, it's super, super interesting and, and is worth, yeah, worth it. And, and I think even if for even if people aren't, fully like engrossing themselves in all things weird and paranormal like like I am I think that folklore is still interconnected to like everyday shit we do like bad luck bad omens like Friday the 13th we just had a Friday the 13th two weeks ago like this folklore is a part of our life in 2023 or or is you know you can at least draw a straight line from some of the weird cultural practices that we adhere by to deep-rooted folklore that goes back hundreds if not thousands of years and and that's what i i I think you nailed it in saying that like it's often discounted because like this is this is the stuff that has shaped humanity basically and it's so interesting when you see the different crossovers like with the black dogs you know greek greek culture scandinavian cultures like welsh cultures like islamic cultures all having these same similar stories that are that have that intersect in like major major ways and all being from cultures that were like so separate and had no no communication at at a time and yeah it's just i don't know it's it's just the most 
fun way to dive into this stuff and it's so interesting the more and more you look into it the more and more you uncover its influences on our day-to-day life and not, you wouldn't think that but it, it, they're there and and, and I, I love it it's just i don't know i was super happy when you suggested doing this as an episode that not only f- just because i wanted to talk to you about the name rouge but also just it, it's just so ripe with so much story you know we barely scratched the surface of these subjects you could spend you could do an entire season of a podcast about each of these things and it's i, I just love it yeah thank you for uh putting this together and taking it on and asking me to do it with you um absolutely yeah of course man thanks so much for being here and yeah that that does it this was this was great i hope you enjoyed this episode thanks again vince for being here if you are new to the podcast it's not the most active podcast in the world but we've got some episodes up there some really good ones you should definitely check out the in particular the michigan dogman episode that vince and i did a couple years ago it's a very very fun one of my favorite stories that i've ever heard from a human about anything weird we talk about in that story vince and i had this crazy encounter so check that out and thanks so much for listening check out strange days online at strangedayszine.com everybody out there i hope you had a happy halloween stay safe stay strange